to see you, especially if you're here for the first time with us at Grace Point. We are absolutely thrilled you're here. My name is Josh Scott. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are just glad to be in this room experiencing this with each other. It's such a beautiful, beautiful morning. And I have the uh, privilege of introducing, not really a guest speaker today, um, but uh, somebody who's I, I don't know what you, OG, I don't know. Like he's, he's been around Grace Point for a long time. Um, so our founding pastor, Stan Mitchell, is here with us this morning. Stan isn't around a lot on Sundays because he's out speaking and doing his thing, and he was going to be in town today, and we're talking about our core values, and since, I mean, he may have had something to do with them, I don't know, but it's, <laughs> it's great to have him. So could you join me in welcoming Stan Mitchell this morning? Thank you. Good to see everybody. Well, what a wonderful, this is the, well, I've been back since um, the transition and the new lead pastor, this guy named Josh. Seems like it's working out pretty well. What do y'all think? Um, The one thing that I love to say now when I talk about this entire transition is the one thing that I, I love is that this church went through a year process of of finding and um, accepting and drawing in. It was quite a process of Josh becoming the the new pastor here, the new lead pastor here. But uh, the one thing that I did not ever tell the board because I didn't want to do the founding pastor, cast a long shadow, have undue influence thing. But I remember when when the process first began, I knew a lot of wonderful people. And part of my responsibility was to connect the church to as many people as possible as candidates, and I think there were probably 10 or 12 candidates. But I do remember in the beginning, um, Carol, I, I went and I sat down with Josh and I said, I'm not, I'm going to do my best not to influence this process, but I would love to know, would you be open? Because I just cannot imagine uh, someone being a better candidate. And he was unsure because he was at Morgantown, but that beginning conversation and Carol, I just backed off as much as possible and watched this church go through a process. And for him to be here, he's been a longtime friend of mine. And to see what's happening here is, Lee, you know, as a retired pastor, it's just lovely. And my heart could not be more full. And I've been wanting to come back for a while and uh, be able to speak and connect with you guys. And so it's, it's really lovely to be able to do that today. So we're talking about the core values at Grace Point, which, again, Grace Point began in my living room. Oh, geez, it was August of 2003. So you guys are a part of, do you know you're a part of a 16-year-old church that's gone through lots of chapters and wonderful chapters, every one of them important. One of the things in the first half of life you really believe is that every chapter you're in is going to be the chapter that finishes the book. But somewhere around midlife, you begin realizing that's not true. And then there's that awkward phase of trying to figure out what to do with the chapters that don't finish the book. And the best thing to do is to let them end and to love them and to open your heart and your mind to a new chapter. And isn't that true of this church? And what a wonderful chapter you guys are a part of a fully inclusive church as this church is does not need to be the exception in this town. Six years ago, five years ago, when we made the move to full inclusion of the LGBTQ community, 
our hope was that we would start a landslide. It seems now five years later, we barely started a trickle. And that trickle is something that we continue to stand and um, witness to and proclaim that must change. And you guys are a part, I just wanted to say you are a part of something deeply, deeply, deeply special. That though you may not understand and have been a part of all of its roots, you are the present iteration of something really, really special that I am so grateful to be a part of. To, to witness to our core values here at Grace Point, the core values of gratitude and curiosity and love and courage, I thought that I could do my part today as a founding pastor and for all of the new folk, give you a little bit of insight to where, our, where my gratitude comes from and just kind of give you a word picture in gratitude and explain a little bit about the history of this church. So I want to preface my message today, and I'm going to read most of this because it was, it was written and this is not a sermon. Um, and you'll understand in a little bit um, exactly what it is. But I want to preface my message today with a brief but important explanation. It's the early part of December 2014, almost five years ago. As the pastor of Grace Point, I'd, we had started the church 11 years before. I was sitting in the den of my then home and I was writing an essay for a graduate class at Vanderbilt. I was writing an essay inspired by the Hebrew prophet Amos. My task was to take a text from one of Israel's 8th century prophets. These were the prophets of social justice in Israel. I was supposed to take either Hosea, Amos, Micah, or 2nd Isaiah. Isaiah is divided into three parts. There were probably three authors. These were prophets who were deeply concerned with Israel's abject failure in the arena we refer to in the current church as social justice, social action. I was to take that ancient text from one of these 8th century prophets and I was supposed to apply it to a contemporary or a current injustice. This being 2014. Grace Point at that point had been in a period of discernment led by people like Lee and Carol Anglin and Carol Brusigar concerning the LGBTQ issue. We'd been in a period of discernment for two and a half years. Prior to that, until 2012, we had been a progressive, contemporary, evangelical church who was pressing the envelope theologically. But you've got to remember, as far back as 2011, even Barack Obama was not publicly stating himself in favor of same-sex unions. That's how far back we were just six years ago. So our church had entered into a period... Um, from 2003, we had kind of had a, this insipid, don't ask, don't tell policy, where we knew that you knew that we knew that you knew, and we had people in our congregation who were LGBTQ who were in positions, but we just didn't talk about it. And so in 2012, we realized that it was time to talk about it, that that was an unfair position, that LGBTQ people were living like the Syrophoenician woman. Remember her in the New Testament? She's the one that came to Jesus and said, please, help my daughter. Jesus said, I, I, we don't work with dogs here. That's a tough, Josh has done the best treatment of that passage of anybody that I know in uh, pastoral ministry. But 
she looked at Jesus and she said something profound. She said, well, I'm willing to accept the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that's where LGBTQ people were living in even the most moderate and forward thinking of Christian churches, Steve. They were living eating the wine-soaked crumbs of communion bread that fell inadvertently from the corners of our mouths. And it was time, Jennifer, for that to be over. 2014 December, it was coming to a head. We'd been in that period of discernment for two and a half years. So it wouldn't be surprising that I chose the injustice of the LGBTQI to write my paper on. And I chose that plight, um, and I even titled the paper LGBTQIA, and the subtitle of the paper was A is for Ally, A is for Amos. Sitting there 2014, I'm writing the paper, and I receive a call from a dear longtime friend, a fellow by the name of Bevan Hawk. Bevan had served as a board member at that point for 11 years since Grace Point's inception. Bevan was the guy who chose the name Grace Point for our church and one of my dearest friends. I was just with him the other day. He told me that our mutual friends, Michael and Josh, had just received the difficult news that the officiant for their marriage was not going to be able to perform the ceremony and it was just two weeks away from the wedding. Let me tell you who Michael was. Michael was one of my dearest friends and in 2004, we had grown up in the same denomination. He was kind of on the same journey I was. He, he along with his wife and two sons, came to Grace Point, and they were Grace Point's first minister of music. He was a profound writer, a profound musician, and a great worship leader. And for a couple of years, he was the minister of music at this church. He was our first and one day he took me to lunch, a sportsman's grill in Cool Springs. He leaned across the table and he tried for 30 minutes to tell me something. And I finally looked at him, Ferlaine, you remember Michael very well, through his tears. And I said, are you trying to tell me that you're gay? And he collapsed and he wept and he wept and he wept. And I began a journey at that point with him. I remember even then in 2005, I looked at my friend and I said, don't run from this. He was in a mixed orientation marriage with two sons. He was the best dad I've ever known. And I said, make this church face this. And he wasn't ready in his own life. I probably wasn't ready. But I, but I remember begging him, make this church face this. He, we just didn't. And he left. He ended up going through a divorce. He ended up going through such agony. Um, there was a five to six year window where he barely got to see his children and he was one of the best dads that I knew. It was, it was tough. So now here we are and I've maintained a really good friendship with him through the years and he and his partner Josh had been together for nine years. In 2013, in December, I had gotten the announcement of their wedding. They invited me. Of course, they did. It was going to be at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I remember even in 2013, we were in the middle of the sermon on this issue. I remember being pained that I wasn't doing the ceremony for him. And now, the context of this 
that I'm reading to you, it was 2014, a year later, he was two weeks from the wedding and the officiant because of pressure, vocational pressure, as you might imagine, had backed out. So 300 guests are coming to this wedding. So let me read. He told me that our mutual friends, Michael and Joss, had just received the difficult news that the officiant for their celebration was not going to be able to perform the ceremony, now just two weeks from the date. He also mentioned what I already knew, that they had always wanted me to perform the wedding, as Michael and I were very close, having grown up in the same denomination and then through his being Grace Point's first pastor of worship and arts. But they didn't ask me because they knew Grace Point was in the process and they didn't want to cause problems for me. We were in the middle of Williamson County. At that point, we had a $1.8 million budget and 800 people coming on Sunday, 2,500 members, and a $52,000 a month building payment. Bevan and I wrestled for a good while there on the phone with the potential, the inevitable fallout if I chose to perform their ceremony at the Country Music Hall of Fame before 300 plus people. Finally, with no decision made, but, the con but my conscience and soul raw, even tortured, we concluded the conversation. I sat there a while, ruminating, struggling, miserable, scared, torn, angry. I had a sense this was a soul-making or a soul-killing moment for me. I intuited that that moment would be life-changing for me either way. Avoiding a decision, I returned to my computer screen and the paper I was writing, and there on the screen, I was writing not just a paper, but a prophetic message to myself. And there on the screen, what I saw smote my heart, my conscience, my soul. I was writing abstractly about the very matter incarnate before me in the lives of my dear friends. It was a divine moment. It was a thin place for sure. I called Michael. I remember that call. I said, we've got a big date coming up in a couple of weeks. He said, we sure do. He said, you're going to be there, aren't you? And I said, of course I am. He paused. He didn't say anything about the officiant backing out. And in the pause, I seized the moment and I said, I hear you need, I hear you need a minister. No answer. Except tears, his and mine. I told him I was honored. He said he would never ask me. Two weeks later, I did my first same-sex union. That was the December of 2014. I didn't think about fallout. I didn't think about church boards. I didn't think about consequences. I didn't think about press, reactions, CBS interviews, advocacy, millions of dollars of income lost, doctrine, etc. All I thought about that day was I could find no way to say no to my friend and remain fully human, fully alive and capable of looking myself and my children. My 14-year-old is sitting in the back of the room. She was born at Grace Point and dedicated here in 2005. I just couldn't figure out how I could look my children in the eye if I didn't do this. I was at peace and I was scared I returned to my essay and for the next two hours literally felt the words dictated to my fingers through my heart. I turned, into the, I, I turned in the paper to a professor who even now 
I wonder if they're a closeted gay person in a church that will not accept them. And my professor gave me an A. Of course they did. I've been sitting with this paper for five years now wondering when I would have occasion ever to share it. And this is a good occasion. LGBTQIA, A is for ally, A is for Amos. I wrote, I was in fourth grade when the happenstance reading of a Dear Abby article informed me of a fact for those young people here, Dear, Dear Abby was an advice column. <laughs> Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even in the 90s, she and her sister, Abby and Ann Landers. Our world, we knew Abby. Dear Abby, this was 1978. She informed me of a fact about us humanoids that in my first decade of life, I was completely oblivious to. I described the reading that day as happenstance because on that particular day, the famed advice column that I never read just happened to be immediately across the cartoon section of our small town paper, the Paragool Daily Press. So there I was, fresh off the school bus, eating my after-school snack and ingesting an intellectual diet composed of Snuffy Smith, Beetle Bailey, and Family Circus. Also, for the young people in the room, those are cartoons from the paper back then. I was reading the cartoons when this inadvertent meandering of my eye across the page led me to that day's attempt by one of the Phillips twins at syndicated therapy. Now, I want to tell you up front that while what I read and learned that day in no way scandalized me, the new information I gleaned from Miss Van Buren was very foreign to me. Actually, it was incredibly strange to this Christian child three miles down a gravel road in 1978's rendition of rural Arkansas. That momentous and liminal threshold afternoon, I, whether by chance or providence, I do not know, in the article, I read the tortured plea for help of a young man, a young man who threw, who though he wanted desperately, could not find a way to tell his parents that he was, the word was gay. Tortured by his self-imposed, but no doubt socially reinforced inability to share this important part of himself, he anonymously and with abandon bled his soul onto the altar of our little newspaper and another million like it. Having no idea what the word gay meant, or for that matter, how holy this moment was not only for me, but for that anonymous young man, I continued to read until finally I deductively pieced together via the indirect hints and the pained intimations of this obviously struggling soul that Abby's unnamed young interlocutor liked men. That he liked men not in the way that I like my dad or my buddy Buck, but the way I like the tow-headed girl who set three rows up on the school bus. The one who acted like she didn't know I existed yet made me feel alive in ways and places beyond my very limited capacity to then understand. And on that wonderfully confusing and confusingly wonderful day, I was introduced to a new reality of this beautiful gift we know as the universe. A reality that as realities and exposures are wont to do would afford me the capacity to embrace this gift called life more fully, more wholly than I ever had before. 
I was introduced to the reality that love is truly a many-splendored thing, that it is bigger and broader and deeper and wider than my 10-year-old mind could imagine, and that it is meted out and received in ways beyond what one life or one group could ever possibly contain and or express. One fact that is incredibly noteworthy to me now as I reflect back on that day, that day from which on one hand I am removed by four full decades and yet on the other hand feels as close as yesterday, is that though this new information that a man could like, yea, love a man the way I knew men liked, yea, loved women, though that fact was indeed foreign and new to me, I distinctly remember as I read the article, I felt no sense of wrong. I felt no sense that something was amiss. There was no foreboding sense that the devil was afoot here. Now, you could easily knee-jerk in your response and say, well, of course you didn't. You were only 10 years old. Ah, but you would not be attuned to the hypervigilance of that little boy named Stan. He was reared in the most scrupulous of fundamentalist religious sects. And that little boy had for years already been acutely aware of matters of sin, guilt, repentance, salvation, damnation, and God's strange psychic mixture of wrath and love. If shame were lent, that little boy was a black wool sweater. My frequent trips to the altar as a child provided only a modicum of relief in that little rural Pentecostal church. Hell and rapture was preached every service, every sermon. And my frequent trips to the altar provided only a modicum of relief for my increasingly religiously damaged psyche. Just as Israel's angst-riddled King Saul used David's leer to calm the troubled waters of his tormented soul, I used those fevered ecclesial Sunday night moments to soothe my shame-coated little heart. Oh, I knew sin. I knew sin even when it wasn't sin. I'll restrain myself now from going any further down that trail lest I work myself into needing a trip to my own therapist tomorrow. Suffice to say, when I was introduced to the reality that God had children who were different in this way from me, children of God who were, well, gay was the new word I learned. As a 10-year-old boy, I sensed no wrong. And I remember finding out how wrong I was in sensing no wrong when I revealed this new piece of information to my Sunday school teacher a few days later. Shame ensued. Her reaction was so harsh that the subject was forced to become dormant in me for the foreseeable future. I was told not even to entertain such filthy thoughts. Since that time, 40 years ago, 41 years ago, I have learned a lot about this subject, albeit less through abstractions, through black letters. Now remember, I'm writing this after I hung up the phone with my friend Michael and said, I'll do it and blew this church that you're a part of up in a million different ways and my life. I've learned a lot about this subject, albeit less through abstractions, through black letters on white pages or through critical text of science and theology. I've learned more about it through the fleshly incarnate letters and words and sentences that are my brothers and sisters who happen to be other than heterosexual. I've learned a lot in the years since I, little by little, weaned off the breast of the only world I knew and traveled up that one and a half lane gravel road 
and on to a world filled with a complex mosaic of beautiful lives, lives that have expanded my simple palette of primary colors by introducing me to shades and hues beyond what I could have ever imagined growing up in that 1100 Jim Walt, square foot Jim Walters home. A home that was neither large nor small, but simply all I knew. Thankfully, no small gravel road, no small house, no small church, no small education, no small community, no small town could keep the beauty of truth suppressed. Thankfully, I have experienced and continue to experience the liberating effects of honest exposure to the world around me. And as Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is reported to have said, the mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size. And people like Mary and Jody and Antonio, and they stretched our hearts. And Jennifer. So here I sit as a grateful participant in an ever-growing corporate cultural consciousness. And though unfortunately halting in its gait and progress, an ever-growing consciousness within the Christian church, I wrote in 2014, the church I so dearly love. An ever-growing awareness and understanding of more than gay or lesbian or homosexuality or heterosexuality or bisexuality or transgender or intersex, but we're learning about sexuality itself and even more of what it means to be human and paradoxically of how simultaneously large and small a part of my identity, sexuality and gender actually are. And I'm quite thankful today that the acronym cited in the title of this sermon that I could not preach at the moment has grown to a seventh letter, LGBTQIA. A seventh letter that stands not only for asexual, but my LGBTQI friends tell me it also stands for the word ally. And these dear Syrophoenician people have included a heterosexual cisgender person like me, someone from a group that would never include them. Well, I must admit that I do hope that one day there will be no need for an acronym with many letters, a day when many of our seemingly important adjectives will become unnecessary in the presence of a noun so complete, lovely, and grand as child of God. I must admit, I am thankful that I have at least made it to the most recent accretion to the acronym, the seventh letter, the letter A. And the fact that this group the LGBTQI, that this group still struggling valiantly, not for the luxuries, but simply the most basic staples of inclusion, that they with wounds still a healing would have the capacity to welcome some of us from the majority group, a group that to the present hour continues to render them so much pain, that they would grant a letter to those of us who have repented this is clear testimony to the image of God that is their heritage, as it is ours. They are living testaments to the power of divine forgiveness and healing. They have graciously given us a place in their very name. A, they tell me, is for ally. A is for those who are not like them, and yet, yet we are. We are just like them. 
A is for ally. A is for those who, by the grace embedded in the fabric of their very being, have somehow been empowered to swim upstream, to swim upstream against the mad currents of bigotry, fear, scarcity, and raw selfishness, both within and without. A is for ally, they tell me. A is for those of us who kept swimming, who have been buoyed by their inherent divinity against the violent undertoes of ignorance and hate. A is for those who have kept swimming until the current turned and carried us laughing and crying into the boundless ocean known as the kingdom of God, the beloved community. A, they tell us, is for ally. And I am thankful to be called ally by these, the least of these, these who I first knew as strange strangers on the road, but now as the Emmaus-bound disciples know them as the presence of Christ taken into the home of my heart. While I deeply hold that our sacred text, the Bible, was forged to be a surgical scalpel, there is no arguing that for 2,000 years this book has frequently, viciously, and tragically been wielded as a dagger. And yet in spite of this unfortunate history, I believe this complex book, when read properly, offers itself as a faithful and effective ally to those cast down, those left out, those pushed away from the table. I ultimately believe this table called the Lord is filled with people from the LGBTQI and every other marginalized community. It is the church that is not sitting at the table. We are not inviting these people to the table we are finally coming to the table called the Lord's. Let us be mindful now of the text we read at the outset of this paper, which I have not read to you. A text drawn from the pages of a book inspired by the life and voice of a Hebrew prophet named Amos. This majestic piece of literature, some two and a half millennia old, reminds us that God's heart has always been for those cast down, those left out, and those pushed away from the table. The text was set during an era of prosperity, an era in Israel some seven and a half centuries before Jesus was born. In that time, the prophetic figure Amos incisively challenged the supposedly favored people, the people of God, regarding the veracity of their faith. He boldly confronted the futility and the vacuous nature of their religious life. He told Israel, in spite of their careful religiosity and hyper-vigilant cultic practices, in spite of their sacrifices and spiritual-sounding songs, in spite of their formal prayers and scrupulous observance of holy days, he plainly told them that they were in no way impressing God. He told them that their big churches, their big buildings, and their big incomes were violently malodorous to the nostrils of God. He opined that they and their hollow religion were repugnant to Yahweh. And then he said, why, you ask? Why, the question begs. On this, the prophet was equally clear. Their religion was vain and their prayers were impotent as a direct result of how they were treating the vulnerable caste of their society. The rural poor was the group of people Amos was vying for. The rural poor who were too many steps removed. The rural poor in the mountains of Guatemala and Honduras who will trek 1,200 miles with a child on their shoulder. 
looking for a better life. This was the rural poor that Jesus said we would always have among us. We would always have them among us because they are an ever-living presence of God to us. Amos spoke for the rural poor who too many steps removed from the margins of profit were not only cut off from opportunity, but were being directly exploited from every angle. The poor potato farmer who turned to grow red flowers called poppy because three of his children were starving in the mountains. And when the government cut out his growing of poppy and he returned to potatoes, those potatoes could not feed his hungry children's belly. Ultimately, even the little they had was replaced with unpayable debt, leaving them no recourse but enslavement leaving them no recourse but to travel miles to see their children torn away from them and put in cages. You're hearing about the foundation of this church. May you build on it well. You have a big mission. This type of injustice was sadly not exceptional, but had become the rule in a myriad of forms in Israel. And having profaned the very heart of their ancestral covenants by transgressing the inseparable commands to love God and their neighbors, the people of Israel with calloused consciences gathered in settings such as we are in this morning and pathetically attempted to cover their dark souls with religious vestments. But Amos reminded them, Amos told them God is no fool. And God will not be mocked. In the words of another prophet of Israel, one who would come centuries later, the people had only whitewashed a grave called religion. And yet in spite of the flashy veneer, no difference was made beneath the surface where God actually saw. The judgment was clear per Amos. And I'll close. There was no song so lofty in its content or celestial in its presentation or correct in its doctrine that it could offset the rampant sexual abuse of the innocent and unprotected. There was no sacrifice so costly that it could compensate the devastated poor for their familial enslavement. There was no religious festival so keenly tuned that it could justify the pervasive miscarriage of justice suffered by the marginalized among them. Only one remedy was possible, came the plaintive cry of the prophet from Tekoa. Only one thing could correct Israel's prodigious failure. And I'll read the text now. And dear Grace Point, let us commit ourselves today to the prophetic call of this text to be an ally of the vulnerable, a friend of the outcast, a defender of the defenseless, and a church that is truly a haven and a place we can fairly call the Lord's table. Amos, alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light to you. It is as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Thus saith the Lord, I despise your religious festivals and I take no delight in your assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. And I can hear King now. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Oh, my sisters and brothers, did you hear the words of Amos? More importantly, did you perchance hear the word of the Lord? On that faith-filled day when we will stand to give an account of our lives, churches like Grace Point, that Ricky Brady with arm around now leads in worship. Ministers of music like Michael Popham had to slip away quietly from. Did you hear the word of the Lord that on that fate-filled day when we will stand to give an account of our lives, the gospel of Matthew chapter 25 agrees with the herdsman prophet named Amos when it says that our sweet Christ will say to us, not well believed, not well sung, not well learned, not well preached. No, a thousand times no. Jesus has already given us the answer to life's great final. On that day, he will say, well done. And what was it that we have done? Oh, Amos would have liked this. To every ally, Jesus will say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and you came to me. A prisoner and you visited me. A stranger you took me in. And surely 2,000 years there will be more words added. I was a young gay couple and you blessed our union. You dedicated our baby. And then we will say to him, when did we see you on this wise? And he will retort with the heart of both Torah and gospel, as much as you did it to the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you were doing it to me. So Grace Point, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. On behalf today of those estranged strangers who walk the road unknown, those who wear the letters of L and G and B and T and Q and I, I wrote in 2014, may I propose to you that if these letters are indeed scarlet in hue, it is not for sin or shame that they are so tinted, not tainted, but it is because they are the color of the blood in the veins of those who wear them the same color as the blood in the veins of yours and mine. And in opening your hearts home to these strangers, you will find that you have re received vastly more than you bargained for and actually have taken in not only them, but another. Another who took on flesh and filled divine veins with the same scarlet strain that every wall would be broken down between us and we would finally be one. Oh, dear stranger, I wrote in 2014 before we were inclusive. I wrote, not knowing that I would botch the process in a thousand ways as a vocational minister, but I got it right in my soul as a human being. When I said, oh dear stranger, Michael and Josh, Jody and Mary, Antonio, won't you come in from the dark road and be warmed in my heart? Won't you stay with me until I find that you are actually no stranger at all 
but you are a sacrament, yea, the presence of God. So thank you, Amos, for reminding us of what it means to be truly religious. And thank you, Abby, for being ahead of the game in 1978 and being my true Sunday school teacher. And thank you to all the allies who make it possible to credibly call this place the Lord's table even more. Thank you to those who have forgiven us now and received us to the table. May it ever be so. Amen. You got a big job to do, Grace Point, and it's really lovely seeing you in this place. Would you bow your heads with me as the team comes to close us? Sweetest Christ, still our hearts for a moment, just a moment. And we thank you for all the ways you have led us. Thank you for bread and wine. Thank you for sacraments and symbols. Thank you for mediating your presence to us in these physical ways. But thank you that at a place like Grace Point, and oh dear Father, may this room one day be filled until it spreads across this city. But thank you for now for the ultimate sacrament setting beside us. Cisgender and trans, heterosexual and homosexual, thank you, sweet presence of Christ, black and white, male and female, for tearing down the margins. And as the church scrambles in its halting gait to catch up, today, at a place called Grace Point, we celebrate that at least here a few more walls have been torn down. So let justice roll down like waters. We drink today from that incredible, gracious well. And we are grateful, grateful, grateful that somehow we got to be at the front side of this movement. We will be responsible in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen.